Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Clinical Social Work Journal podcast. I am Melissa Grady, and I'm here today with one of the authors of an upcoming article in our latest issue that will be released. Um, it's actually already online, but you it'll be in the print edition as of January. I'm here with Kyle Ganson, and the article that we're going to be talking about today is called Eating Disorder Symptoms, Non-Suicidal Self-Injury, Suicide Behavior Are Associated Among College Men. So I'm going to let um, Dr. Gannon introduce himself. Do you use him, her, him, he, pronouns? Okay. Um, And so I'll let you introduce yourself and share anything about who you are and how you came to this topic and what brought you to this area of study. Sure, happy to do so. So um, yes, my name is Kyle Ganson. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Um, I've been at my faculty position for about two years. This is my third year. Um, and my research has been, since, since my uh, PhD program, my research is predominantly focused on um, eating disorders and body image and muscle building behaviors uh, among particularly the male population, though I also look at other populations as well. Um, and so that's really what brought me to doing this study was trying to understand uh, a bit more of the nuances of experiences um, of the male population related to eating disorders. Um, there's a very limited research on uh, eating disorders among the male population, though it is growing now, which is great. Um, and more awareness has become, uh, you know, among clinicians and among researchers um, around these behaviors among, among males. So, um, you know, that's kind of what brought me to it. It's, and also, I should say, too, my clinical practice, ex practice experience has been with um, the eating disorder population, um, predominantly with women. And so um, I was kind of most curious about what was preventing men from being a part of this this uh, field and being a part of treatment um, in both the research component and, of course, the treatment component. So um, a lot of my interest in the area and the research questions I ask um, really stem from my clinical experience working with, uh, you know, individuals with eating disorders. Oh, so that's interesting. So, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do a podcast around this particular topic is because it isn't something that we see a lot in the literature. So, but it sounds like in your clinical experience, one of the things that prompted you to start researching this population is, although you were working within eating disorders, mm -hmm. you weren't seeing the men come in yes. and, and yeah. wondering about why that is and, and what's going on with that. Yeah. And some of that was, uh, I mean, certainly at the time when I was practicing clinically, um, I, uh, you know, was working more in field and like the eating disorder field, which, and the programs that I was working in were much more tailored towards women or did a little bit more outreach towards women, just because there is more women with eating disorders. Um, but I think, you know, in the, in the experience I've had in other settings outside of eating disorders, like more general mental health, working with adolescents and young people, um, I often found that even males who had depression or anxiety, um, or substance use, like they were also engaging in disordered eating behavior. So they might not have met criteria, for example, for anorexia um, or bulimia or something on those lines, but um, they did they did engage in behaviors like they would skip meals or they wouldn't eat for a day or two or, um, uh, you know, or they would, you know, purge via vomiting or compulsive exercise. So there were behaviors that were there. They just might not have met like the quote unquote full criteria of an eating disorder uh, from the DSM. So yeah, there's definitely like an input, there's definitely like a comorbidity among the behaviors that I was able to see. You know, before we get into 
the, the details of your study and what you looked at and what your main questions were. I think it probably is gonna be helpful for you to explain when you say eating disorders, mm -hmm. just mention that not everything is gonna meet DSM criteria. Sure. So can you just explain what, when you're, how are you defining eating disorders and are the particular diagnoses that fall under that? And yeah. if, are, or are there ones that are kind of on the fringe? Sure, um, yeah. That's, obviously that's the good... DSM is, you're either in the box or you're out of the box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, and when we say DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is yeah. published by the American Psychiatric Association and is the listing, mm -hmm. at least in the US, although we're the only people who use it, mm -hmm. um, the list of different mental health disorders that people use to diagnose individuals. So um, yeah. when we're talking about eating disorders, how are you just defining, describing? Yeah, from like from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, you know, I'm thinking of eating disorders clinically, like, you know, meeting criteria for like binge eating disorder or other specified feeding and eating disorder, which is a little more of a catch-all. Um, there's also others like ARFID, which is more of a atypical sort of, um, you know, more around, not less around body image and more around like textures of foods or sort of quote unquote picky eating. Um, so a little often, often is more diagnosed among young people like kids, teens. Um, uh, so the main sort of eating disorders that I'm talking about are like clinically diagnosed based on the criteria within the DSM. So when I use that term eating disorders, I'm thinking of that. Um, and again, the main, the three main ones would be uh, anorexia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and bulimia nervosa. There is also atypical anorexia, um, which is also very common, which is actually, um, it doesn't really account for the, the weight component of uh, anorexia nervosa. So you experience the same symptomology, some of the same, um, you know, body image concerns, some of the same uh, physiological health issues, um, but there's not that significant weight loss that you typically see in um, anorexia nervosa. And then I'll, you know, I'll use the term like eating disorder behaviors or uh, eating disorder symptoms. And I think in that context, when I use those terms, I'm sort of referencing like the individual behaviors that you might see within the criteria of the DSM, such as like fasting or uh, binge eating or purging via vomiting or compulsive exercise or using laxatives or something along those lines um, in order to control weight or manipulate weight and body in some way. Um, so certainly the diagnostic criteria is consumed by these different symptoms, but of course you have to meet certain symptoms in order to meet the criteria for the diagnosis. So um, hopefully that's a bit clearer uh, for, for kind of explaining. Yeah, and can, you, can you just um, tell the difference between bulimia and the binging and purging? Yeah, sure. So uh, well, anorexia is typically strictly restriction. Um, so restricting caloric intake, um, of course, there's also like subtypes of that where you can, you know, purge via vomiting, um, bulimia typically follows a pattern of binge eating and then purging typically via vomiting. And then binge, binge eating is usually just strictly binge eating. Um, oftentimes though, people do who do binge eat, um, uh, will also do things like fast or use some sort of compensatory behavior. Um, uh, but the, the main sort of behavioral component is the, the act of binge eating, losing control of, of eating, um, feeling lots of guilt and shame after eating things of that nature. Okay. So, um, so now let's shift into your study sure. and talk a little bit about what you did and what you were interested in and what you were mainly trying to explore. So if you can just kind of mm -hmm. describe what your main questions were and, and what yep. you went ahead and did. 
Yeah. Um, so the main the main question I was sort of looking at was thinking about what are some of the co-occurring behaviors, symptoms um, of um, eating disorders among uh, the male population. So um, some of this was constrained to the college population because of the data that I was using, which is the Healthy Mind study, which is a, a large repeat cross-sectional study of Oh man, like many, many colleges and universities across the US. I don't know what they're at at this point, um, but they are continually growing. I think one of their most recent years had, you know, 80 or 90,000 participants. Um, so it's a very large study. Um, and so I was, you know, and I'm interested in young people. So most of my research is focused on adolescence, young adulthood. So the college sample sort of made sense for me to investigate these questions. Um, and also, you know, we know that college youth and young people have a lot of a lot of mental health problems on college campuses. Um, and again, this is sort of an onset, the age of onset for many mental health issues is between 18 and 25, you know, roughly. So, um, you know, the college sample is sort of ripe for investigating mental health, you know, concerns. Um, and so, so I use the data um, specifically to investigate eating disorder symptoms, non-suicidal self-injury and suicidal behavior. So like suicidal um, ideation and suicide attempts. Um, and so what, what I did was um, specifically looked at whether or not if someone experienced suicidal ideation or non-suicidal self-injury um, or suicide attempts, were they, you know, more likely or that, was that associated with eating disorder symptoms? Um, and what we found was that um, certainly suicidal ideation was associated with eating disorder symptoms um, and also non-suicidal self-injury. Um, we did find some mixed findings related to uh, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a little bit around suicide, suicidal attempts, um, like people who actually attempted suicide and eating disorder behaviors um, or symptoms. Um, so ultimately, like the main takeaway is that, you know, it's likely many clinicians uh, thinking back now about practice, how this how, how this can really do, relate directly to practice. Um, sort of my conceptualization of this is that many clinicians, and this is my clinical experience too, who are working with college age men or young men, are likely going to be more attuned to screen for suicidal ideation or suicide attempts or um, non-suicidal self-injury. Those behaviors seem a bit more commonly understood within the, within the clinical population. Um, they're obviously very like risky, right? We think about like wanting to make sure people are safe, um, like physically. Um, and so those that sort of red flags and those screenings happen quite quickly and often right away in many clinical settings. So if we can you know, identify, oh, this person has suicidal ideation, this person has non-suicidal self-injury. The impetus then is to sort of screen further for other like psychiatric comorbidities or symptoms such as eating disorder symptoms. So, um, you know, my hope, the main takeaway and the hope that I have, I have for people is um, we can't stop at identifying, oh, this is just non-suicidal self-injury. We need to sort of go further. And if we identify those eating disorder symptoms, that co-occur with these other behaviors, um, we can do more, right? We can uh, properly identify and and um, and diagnose. We can then pop, pop, uh, properly treat or find the right treatment for that person. Um, and then the, hopefully, you know, fewer men uh, will be missed in the treatment setting uh, for eating disorders. And, and obviously that would be a really beneficial thing overall. Yeah, so you're reminding me that I think a lot of times when, uh, we as faculty, when we're training our students to think about diagnosing, we're often saying, if you see anxiety, ask about depression. Mm -hmm. If you see depression, ask about anxiety. Right. If you see depression and or anxiety, you ask about substance use. Right. That there are these um, disorders that often, as you say, mm -hmm. coexist together. Yep. And what it sounds like what you're saying for clinicians is if you're 
if you're screening for self-injury, such mm-hmm. as, and when you say non-suicidal self-injury, yeah. um, I'm thinking cutting yeah. mainly as, as the main yeah. one, yeah. um, with not an attempt to die, but it's yes. often a way to regulate affect, yeah. um, and, often distract from emotional pain to pivot yep. to more physical pain. Right. Um, so, but it sounds like what you're hoping is that as more and more research comes out, that these things do correlate with yep. each other. We don't know the causal relationship, but as they right. correlate and are associated with each other, yep. that more clinicians will get into this habit of, oh, I'm hearing non-suicidal self-injury. I'm hearing about suicide ideation. I should therefore be asking about eating patterns and what's going on with that. Is that exactly yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, I think that's exactly right. That the more, and then I think it's important to note that, yeah, this is, this study was cross-sectional. So there's not really a sense of causality or like one leads to the other. Um, that being said, it's likely that the relationship is bi-directional. I think that, I think if we did a survey, you know, we would probably be able to find that there are some people who started with non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal ideation and then moved on to eating disorder behaviors or other, or that sort of like the pattern, or I should say the timeline and then mm-hmm. vice versa, where there actually would be like eating disorder symptoms that happened first and then non-suicidal self-injury or suicidal behavior. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, yeah, that's the, that's the big main takeaway. Um, and I think we'll talk more maybe about like the sort of functions of the behaviors, um, and I think that's another takeaway too, is sort of understanding, at least from the conceptual model that I was coming from and thinking about the behaviors is that they coexist or co-occur, um, you know, likely due to some sort of like emotion regulation component or maladaptive emotion regulation component. Um, and so the behaviors manifest as ways to manage affect or manage emotions uh, in, in quote unquote maladaptive ways um, versus more adaptive ways that we hope people will, will do that in. Well, can you say a little bit more about that? Because one of the things you talk about is that you used a model called the emotional <clears throat> regulation model. Mm-hmm. So can you say a little bit more about why this model and how that helped inform your study? And and yeah. again, what can clinicians take away from these major, the major tenets of the theory and how sure. they help you understand this population? Yeah, and that model is sort of like a maybe a big umbrella sort of concept um, to think about how just how people manage emotions and generally sort of can be fit into two categories, right? One is more like maladaptive or, you know, harmful ways or or they're effective, but they're harmful for the person in some capacity. And so certainly, you know, someone has strong emotion and they don't really don't what to do with it. So they maybe cut themselves and that relieves some of that emotional tension that they have. Um, you know, or similarly, you know, someone has some strong emotion and they decide to like binge eat, right? And they sort of, you know, cope with those emotions through food um, or vomiting or something along those lines. Um, uh, or even suicidal ideation, you know, certainly people um, clinically, there's often lots of conversation around like, well, if it gets so bad that I can just, you know, end my life kind of thing, right? That sort of thought of being able to cope with feelings or cope with experiences um, with the hope or with the uh, uh, with the kind of out of suicide, if that is the case for them or they need that. Um, so yeah, the, there's sort of like major umbrella is sort of around that, like there's ways of coping with feelings maladaptively or adaptively. Um, but then when you look at the different models of, um, you know, eating disorders, uh, non-suicidal self-injury and suicidal behavior. Um, and there were three that I specifically looked at, which is the interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, which is a very well-known uh, theory around suicide and how, how people kind of progress through different 
ideation to attempts, et cetera. Um, and then the transdiagnostic theory for eating disorders, and then the integrated theoretical model of non-suicidal self-injury. So those are the three sort of models that I specifically looked at around the individual behaviors. Um, and in each one of those models, there's like either explicit notions of emotion regulation. Um, like for example, in the trans, trans diagnostic model of for eating disorders, there's actually like a mood intolerance component or construct, um, which kind of explains that like people with eating disorders just have trouble managing emotions and there's an intolerance there. Um, and uh, but more, and then more like um, sort of like implicitly uh, with like the like interpersonal psychological theory of suicide, which is people are, you know, there's this idea of being, um, you know, like this perceived burdensomeness. So people might feel like, like really heavy emotions about being burdens to others. And so that maybe influences their desire to die. Um, and so from that con conceptual framework of like people engage in either maladaptive or, ma uh, or adaptive ways of emo emotion regulation, looking at these individual theories, I sort of conceptualize that these things will likely connect based on this general sense of emotion regulation. Like we're using these behaviors as emotion regulation techniques. They're obviously not very <laughs> effective. Like they're effective in the moment, but long-term they're obviously not effective for people. Um, and so thinking about, thinking about emotion regulation was what for me conceptually brought the, brought the behaviors and symptoms together. And, and what do you think is different for males or people who identify as males mm -hmm. versus other gender identities. What do you think? How do you? Wh what's unique about that particular mm -hmm. part of the population around emotional regulation that mm -hmm. you think either sort of again we're not talking causal necessarily, right. but yeah. contributes to this dynamic of yeah. the need to use these strategies for emotional regulation. Yeah, um, obviously, um, you said women have more eating disorders right. than men. Mm -hmm. But so, what is it? I guess, what is it that's unique about this particular sliver of the population mm -hmm. that you're trying to understand? Yeah, and I I think that the models would probably apply to women or other genders as well. I don't think it's like explicitly exclusive to males. I think some of the I think this maybe this is not really specific to what I investigated specifically or wasn't in the article itself. I don't think. Um, but thinking about just male socialization, I mean, generally males are socialized to not experience emotions, or um, or when they do when they do experience emotions, they're there's a lot more sort of outward or external ways in which of dealing with that, whether that be violence or substance use, um, you know, again, some of those more problematic behaviors, um, you know, more risk, quote unquote, risky behaviors. So I think the male population in general just gen just has been socialized. Again, I'm using this as a very large umbrella. That's obvious. There's obviously some heterogeneity, heterogeneity in that, um, but the sort of cultural norms around masculinity and, and malehood a uh, manhood is uh, is to not experience emotion. So, um, and to sort of push those down. And so I think that's a unique aspect of, and specific to the male male population in general. Um, but I do think, yeah, I, I do also think that this would apply to other populations as well. I don't think lots of research has been done specifically around eating disorders um, and emotion regulation and coping and abilities to manage emotions. And most of that research has been done with women. So um, it's it's sort of across the board, I would say. So why do you think that males are so hesitant to come in? If this is, I mean, if this is a similar 
mm-hmm. pattern or or process that you're seeing mm-hmm. with other gender identities? What is it about males mm-hmm. that makes this yeah. either taboo or mm-hmm. or something that they don't want to get help with? Yeah. What, I mean, what is it? Do you think <laughs> that is unique here? There's like many many factors I think that contribute to that. So one is the misconception that eating disorders don't affect males, and so if that's a social narrative uh, that will impact not only practitioners who see males who experience eating disorder symptoms not to ask questions or not to screen further, um, or it would also affect males. There's often there's like research that have shown that many men just don't seek treatment because they don't think they have a problem. Like despite the fact that they're maybe binging and purging, they're like, well, it's not an eating disorder because it doesn't affect you know men, right? It's only women thing, right? So males just don't have a lot of like that of that knowledge or insight into this can, this can be a problem that affects them. Um, you know, because so much of the research and the clinical tools that we use to diagnose eating disorders or even conceptualize them at large have been generated based on female populations, um, they don't, they're not always sensitive enough to actually capture the male population. Um, you know, one of the main limitations of my study is that we use the SCOF tool, screening tool, which is a five item screening tool, um, but is generally, sadly, not super sensitive to, to kind of uh, you know, capturing the male eating disorder experience, which generally is slightly different than the female experience, which much, most of the baby behaviors for females and the body image concerns for females, again, I'm using this as a large umbrella, there's some nuance under this, um, is geared towards thinness, thinness oriented, you want to lose weight to be thin to fit the thin ideal. Uh, whereas males, most of the behaviors, while there is a thinness component, it's more structured around leanness. So males often want to be lean, They don't want to have a lot of body fat. They want to be cut. They want to have musculature. Um, And so it's more of like a bulk muscularity and leanness. And if you look at a lot of the measures that we use um, for eating disorders, they don't actually ask questions about muscularity. They don't ask questions about leanness. They don't ask questions about weightlifting and uh, use of steroids or other performance enhancing substances um, or other sort of nuanced eating eating behaviors related to like building muscle and, and performance. So um, so that I think is another component of just missing, missing men. And then, as I said before, like culturally at large for all mental health problems across the board, all physical health problems, like most, I shouldn't say all, but like most physical health problems, men often are, you know, not seeking treatment for it. You know, they, they are socialized in many ways to sort of deal with it on their own, you know, to kind of be, you know, that, that, uh, sort of have that sort of, uh, individuality and, um, and not seek help when they need it. So, um, I think there's many factors. <laughs> there's yeah, no, that's it's really interesting. I hadn't um yeah, I mean I hadn't really I, when you say it, I go, duh, of course, but mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about the fact that the questions that you would be asking on any screening tool. I mean, again, when you say it, I go, of course, duh. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this with depression also, um, and how differently depression can manifest in men versus women. And again, we're talking about binary genders right now. Of course. Um, Where we're, I I just don't think we have enough research on people who identify as Mm -hmm. non-binary or trans or other gender identities. But, um, so I want to just acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, yeah, But I, it it is interesting to think because you're right with women, when I think of an eating disorder, I think of women who want to be thin and lean, yeah. and have, you know, 
skin mm-hmm. and bone, arms or legs mm-hmm. or look like the Victoria. You know, it's the contrast. It's the super skinny, but the big breasts, like the Victoria's right. Secret mm-hmm. model. Yeah. You know, that sort of epitomizes what people think of. Yeah. But you're right. When I think about a male and what sort of the quote unquote ideal, mm-hmm. it's the the Superman. Mm-hmm. And you look at all, we just had Halloween and you look at all yeah. those kids and the superheroes who yeah. are male superheroes and they, they build in those buff, yeah. um, <laughs> buff tops. And even yeah. though they're five years old, yeah. Yeah. they're running around with these big muscular right. Spider-Man and Superman and yeah. other superhero physiques. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's the V waist. Yes. Yeah, so exactly. Like the really big, broad shoulders, yeah. and the chest and the pecs, and then going down to the skinny waist. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, you're right. It's it, those questions. And it would be great if you can post um, that at least a link or the yeah. resource for that screening tool. Yeah. Um, so that brings me to, are there people who are developing screening tools to try and, um, capture some of these nuances and these subtleties because if it's not very sensitive you're right then any screening tool it's going to just confirm what you said that the males are going to say oh well I don't I don't have this as an issue this isn't my issue so therefore I don't have an issue therefore I don't need to seek treatment right yeah there are like newer measures actually recently there's been a few that have come out um One's called the muscularity oriented eating test. Um, the other one is called the eating for muscularity scale. Yeah. That's what it's called. Um, and then there's also like the drive for muscularity scale. There's also the muscle dysmorphic disorder inventory. Um, and so those are like more psychometric measures. So they really try to capture, I think, a bit more uh, like nuance of behaviors. Um, there's like the SCOF, which is what I use for my um my study is a five item screening. So it's not meant to diagnose. It's not to say right. like, you know, you, you di- are now diagnosed with this behavior, uh, with this disorder. Um, it's more meant to just say, okay, there's a problem here. Uh, like on the five items, if you score f- two or higher then technically you screen positive for an eating disorder, which would then indicate in like a primary care setting, um, you know, Hey, this person needs to be followed up with around this. I don't know of any specific screeners. I don't think there's any like short item, you know, one to two, three item, four item, five item screener that can be specifically used in like primary care settings or, um, you know, brief clinical settings. Um, Cause the other, the other ones that I mentioned a few minutes ago, like those are longer item. I think some of them are like, you know, 15 to, you know, 30 items. So that obviously takes a lot of time. It takes time to score them. It can be, you know, it's, I think it's a bit more geared towards the research focus on things. Um, but I always tell people that, um, especially in the clinical field, like that, you know, we can't just, you can start by just asking simple questions about like body, <laughs> like, what are you trying to do with your body right now? Um, cause generally my hunch would be that at least two out of five males is probably going to say, Hey, I'm trying to gain weight. And so that would be a, like, not a red flag, but an orange flag for me to ask follow-up questions about how are they doing that? specifically around, um, you know, are they lifting weights and how often are they lifting weights? Uh, if they're lifting weights, they've probably done some things to change their diet in some capacity. They might be over-consuming protein. They might be using whey protein or creatine supplements. They might be using steroids. Um, so the simple question around like, what are you trying to do about your weight right now can open up lots of doors or, you know, weight or body. How are you trying to change your body right now? Um, you know, that opens some doors to further follow-up. Um, and so that would be, I mean, 
I'm, I'm just speaking more like empir not empirically, very like, uh, you know, just anecdotally, but I think that's a good way to just open up doors to have conversations about, you know, body and weight and eating behaviors, exercise behaviors, particularly among the male population. Sounds like if you're looking for your next research agenda. <laughs> <it's okay>. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, that's actually true. I mean, I am working on some things now that hopefully will lead to potentially developing some levels of screeners around this. So yeah, I think you're you're onto it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think about the MAST, which is the Michigan um, yep. alcohol substance abuse. Yep. I'm not going to get it correct. I don't know. Yeah. I know what it is, but I don't know that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the same. It's the same idea where it's yeah. I think it's five. It's also I think five questions. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, have you ever tried to cut down? Has anybody ever spoken to you about your drinking or something? Right. Yeah. Just again, doesn't diagnose you, but it does sort of. If you score a particular number, mm -hmm. it says okay, time to investigate further. Yeah. Exactly. On that. So and there's a number of those too, like the PHQ-9, which measures yeah. depression. There's like the PHQ-2, right. which is actually quite effective in screening it. Even the GAD-7, there's the GAD-2 for anxiety. So right. yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of opportunity to even pare down some of the measures that we have now, you know, to really just capture something that can be a screener. So yeah, it's a great, it's a good topic and something I'll be looking forward to doing in the future <laughs> and working on currently, so. Well, getting getting back to your study, um, sure. I mean, one of the things that you talked about that you mentioned even in your intro is that you had mixed results around mm -hmm. the suicide attempts. So you yep. did find a positive correlation between eating disorders and non-suicidal self-injury. So basically right. people who cut are also more likely to have an eating disorder. People who have an eating disorder are more likely to cut right. um, and do some sort of self-harm that way. But can you say a little bit more about the suicidal ideation and attempts and, and what was mixed about that? Sure. So um, when looking at just the association between eating disorder, the eating disorder symptoms and suicidal ideation, we did find that when we had, when we sort of ran our analyses in the uh, quote unquote adjusted model, which includes things like race, it accounts for things like age, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation. So when you sort of analyze it with those other factors of an individual, we did find positive relationships between suicidal ideation and eating disorder symptoms. Um, the main difference was in our adjusted analyses, again, sort of accounting for all these other factors that may explain the relationship between the variables or between the behaviors. We didn't find any significance with um, suicide attempts and eating disorder symptoms. Um, now, like the caveat to that is that obviously in the sample, there's very few, you know, suicide attempts are quite yeah. clinically severe and uh, not everybody who has suicidal ideation goes on to attempt. Um, so there was a smaller pool pool of people, um, like actual people who did say that they had reported a suicide attempt. Um, um, so, but then when we looked at just the simple association, so like is, um, is you know, uh, suicide attempts associated with um, eating disorder symptoms without accounting for other factors like age, race, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we did find that generally there was a higher level of, you know, per people, um, I have it somewhere, let's see, 39% of, of people who had um, attempted suicide were also screening positive for an eating disorder. And that was significantly higher than the 29% of just people who uh, had an attempted suicide. So, um, Suicide attempts, I think, are likely associated, especially because we know from other empirical research that um, people who have eating disorders often die by suicide. That's one of the main sort of uh, causes of mortality um, and often experience uh, suicide attempts. So 
empirically from previous data, it would make sense that there is some connection between them. Um, some of the lack of findings in this in the analyses that does account for all the variables um, likely is due to the methodology of the study where we just didn't maybe have the sample size to really capture that um, because there's so few people who reported suicidal ideation. I'm sorry, suicide attempts. Um, the other thing I'll say too is that when you look at the effect size, which is you know kind of what is the like level of association between the two variables in that analysis that includes all the variables, um, like all the other variables, um, it's positive. So even though it's not statistically significant, it's in the direction of these things are associated and it's likely that the lack of statistical significance based on a p-value is kind of just based on statistics <laughs> and the level of we statistics. We just didn't have the numbers. We just didn't have it's, the numbers well, to really find that. 39% is a pretty, that's a pretty significant percentage. Yeah, so 39% of the people who reported suicidal attempts also screened positive for an eating disorder. Um, and that's compared to 29% of the people who said they had a suicide attempt screened positive for an eating disorder. So yeah, it's it's a lot. It's almost almost half, right? I mean, it's more yeah. than a third. Um, yeah, more than a third. That's so yeah, very clinically relevant, very clinically important um, for us to be thinking about. You also, I mean, as part of that, you you mentioned that you were looking at other demographic variables. And can mm -hmm. you say a little bit more about how some of the demographic variables influenced your findings? I know you looked at cultural differences and yeah. um, uh, gender minorities a little bit. Um, so anything anything that you can share about sort of that nuance piece that sure. you just were. Yeah, we only really reported, uh, like we only reported in the study, um, the like the simple association between eating disorders and um, like race, ethnicity and sexual orientation or identity. Um, and so generally for eating disorders in the sample, we found that um, like, like sexual uh, minorities were more likely to have a positive eating disorder screen. And so that was like roughly 25% of um, sexual minorities compared to only 13% of heterosexual males. So mm -hmm. again, empirically based on previous research, we know that among those, you know, sort of two populations that eating disorders are often higher among the sexual minority population. So when I say sexual minority, I mean like gay or bisexual or queer um, or some other sort of sexual identity um, compared to heterosexuals where generally the heterosexual population, the percentage of people in that, in that group there's lower, like, low, like lower prevalence of eating disorders. So that makes a lot of sense um, based on the previous literature. Um, and then we also looked at race ethnicity. So um, generally all races aside from white, uh, I'm sorry, aside from uh, being black or African-American um, had higher, higher percentage of eating disorder symptoms compared to white uh, males. So again, sort of breaking a little bit of the preconceived notions or social, like social narratives around eating disorders only affecting like white affluent people. Um, actually, our study and other studies have also shown this, that eating disorders across, are, uh, affect and eating disorder symptoms across, uh, affect people across, um, you know, race ethnicities. Um, and, and at some points and oftentimes higher among those other race ethnicities. So Again, not only should we be super conscious as clinicians of the uh, of the screening for males and eating disorders, but we should also be not leaving out like males who identify as Asian or males who identify as Hispanic, males who identify as Black, um, males who identify as a sexual minority. Like those populations are equally as important, if not more important, to screen and be sort of aware of the potential for eating disorders. And you mentioned all groups except for Blacks. Blacks. So what 
Uh, and it was marginally lower. So black was 12% of black men in the in the sample compared okay. to 14% or so, roughly 14% of male, uh, I'm sorry, of white males. So, okay. you know, two percentage points, not much, <laughs> but, right. you know, still. But the uh, other groups, the other groups were higher than the white. Yeah, higher. So most of them were roughly between 16 and 20% um, compared okay. to like the 14% of, of white males. Yeah, and that's like up to a fifth of. Yeah. That's that's high. significant. Yeah, that's high. Yeah. Um. Okay, so so we're we're getting close to the end here, and I, I guess I would like if you could, and we've already talked a little bit about this, but if if you could say what are you know three main clinical implications, the three main take home messages that you want for clinical social workers or or other disciplines who are working clinically, yeah. um, what should be the things that we should really take away from this study? into their practices, into their agencies, into their communities? Um, well, I think first is like the, you know, among this sample, which is quite large, it was about 14, almost 15,000 males, um, you know, that these are pretty common behaviors that occur among the samples. So, I mean, again, if you look just specifically at the sample of college men, I do think we could probably, you know, expand that in some capacity and see how it might translate to other populations, such as non-college men, college-enrolled men. Um, but, you know, I think taking into account that like eating disorders are actually relatively common or eating disorder symptoms are relatively common, like almost 16% of the sample has screened positive for eating disorder um, or have those symptoms. So that's that's a fairly large percentage of what we might not think would be the case. Um, and same for non-suicidal self-injury, um, same for the suicidal ideation, like those are pretty common um, behaviors that are happening among, among this population. So we can't overlook them in the clinical settings. Um, so that's number one. So, and then that, that includes like, you know, more training, more awareness, more, more screening on behalf of, um, you know, clinical social workers and others. Um, I think the well, second I mean, thing, your, sorry, before you go to your second yeah. one, and, but I mean, you're based on what you've said earlier, your study might be under even counting. Yes. Based on the screening tools that you right. used. So yeah. it may be that these numbers are significantly um, higher in reality, yes, um, or, or numbers are significantly lower right. than what is happening because you didn't. There weren't questions like the muscular focus right. and building bulk and getting lean. Yeah. Um, so, I, so that seems like an important thing to also think about. Even though, yes, yes this is an important issue. It may even be bigger. Mm -hmm than your study even indicates. Yes, totally, 100%. Yeah, that's a great point. That, yeah, there's there's measurement issues in all studies, but there's certainly measurement issues here that we can talk about, and that would be one of them, that the screening yeah. tool, I mean, I could I would probably guess that the, it's probably double, like, so it's probably about 30% um, would be my, my hunch, is that roughly 30% would report some kind of disordered eating or eating disorder symptoms or behaviors or, or even just like thoughts around body that are disordered. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that would be my estimate. So I think that's a great point. Um, okay. Sorry about that. Okay, no, that's two. okay. I appreciate it. Um, my second point would be like about the main study findings, which is just like the interconnectedness of the behaviors. So you know, we can't, as I mentioned in the study, and as we were chatting about here, I think I hope that people take away, like clinicians take away that, that this, you know, the identification of, you know, um, suicidal ideation or non-suicidal self-injury or even suicide attempts should be an impetus to sort of move forward and ask more, more follow-up questions about eating disorder behaviors. I mean, I, I think you should also ask questions about like depression and anxiety and substance use as well. 
but we can't overlook the eating disorder components as well. Um, so that I think is in a major, major component. Um, and I think in relation to that, which is maybe a bit my third point, which is, again, if you think about this conceptually from the conceptual model that I was using, um, I think emotion regulation might be an effective technique to actually help people in this capacity. So, um, you know, if you're thinking about treatment, if this comes up as a problem for a client, um, you know, helping them develop emotion regulation skills um, can be very helpful and potentially, you know, make some changes for them. So, again, to, to replace some of these maladaptive behaviors with more adaptive behaviors. Well, in, in the last seconds, and I know we need to wrap up, but I, I do think one of the things that um, when you, whenever I hear emotional regulation, I think about dialectical behavioral yep. therapy. Yep. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to pitch it or, or <laughs> sell it or anything like that. But for me, that's the number one treatment model that comes up when I think about emotional dysregulation, also around self-injury. Sure, um, yeah. harming behaviors. And many people argue that an eating disorder mm -hmm. is classified as a self-harming behavior. Yep. Um, it's not, again, it's not the, the visual in the mm -hmm. same way that somebody's cutting yeah. can be, but it, it certainly, I think could be classified as a self-harming behavior. Yep. So, um, just really quickly, are there other models that you, in your clinical experience or in the research that you're seeing have been used around emotional regulation or is that kind of the go-to that most people are heading to? I mean, I think DBT is certainly very common in the eating disorder, you know, sort of community. Um, I think like mindfulness sort of techniques can be really effective, you know, helping people develop more awareness, more ability to sort of recognize thoughts and emotions and sort of not necessarily have to change them, but just kind of let them be, which obviously DBT has components in. Um, I mean, certainly I think like CBT has various aspects of sort of recognizing thoughts and emotions and how that impacts behavior. So that can be helpful. I don't think there's like a one size fits all. I think you can, yeah. you know, pull from anywhere. And I think general, just like skills based, like a lot of the times in my practice, like I would just hand people a giant list of coping skills and like, we would talk about how they can use them, you know, uh, which isn't really fully like one specific modality. It's just helping people identify other skills that they can use that they like to do. So um, yeah, I think there's many, many facets of how we can help people manage emotions. Great. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you really want to add before we sign off here? No, I think it was good. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate, uh, you know, this, this, uh, highlighting this and having the conversation to build some more awareness for clinicians and researchers. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Great. And um, the article that you wrote will be linked to this podcast so readers can see it. And it'll be available for on our clinical social work website where people can go and find um, other articles in the same issue and also open access or online first that we've made available. Um, but people will be able to link to this and um, have access to it for 30 days after the podcast airs. So thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the best in your research and um, look forward to seeing the new screening tool. You're going to. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> okay, thank you.